Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Democrat Jared Polis has been Colorado's governor for a month now. And when I asked how he's liking the job, he told me he's thrilled he doesn't have to go to Washington every week. That was hard on his family when he was in Congress. But he's also thrilled not to deal with D.C. gridlock. We spoke in his office at the state capitol. I mean, I think that so much of the real action to improve people's lives. A lot of that action will really come about here in Colorado. There's just a stalemate in Washington, and it really just seems likely that'll remain intractable for at least the short term. Can you give me an example of an interaction maybe that you've had with a lawmaker, perhaps a lawmaker of a different party that gives you the sense, oh, Colorado is different from Washington. Well, you know, even the very first bill that the legislature was able to get to our desk, which they approved, uh, I believe, unanimously, which was a fix on the way that we tax beer in this state. Had we not fixed it, it would have gotten the way of uh, beer being available in supermarkets, which had been agreed to before. And, you know, these things in Washington get bogged down. Um, there often have to be a fix to bills. It takes two, three years sometimes. Uh, the legislature got that to my desk and done in about two weeks weeks um, to the benefit of our craft brewing industry, to the benefit of consumers, and it got done very quickly. As smooth as all that might have been, Governor Paulus faced something thornier this week, whether to keep Denver teachers from striking, at least temporarily. On Wednesday, he chose not to intervene, meaning the strike over pay and advancement starts Monday if the two sides don't reach an 11th hour agreement. Paulus certainly hopes they will. We are trying to push both sides to get back to meaningful negotiations. They're really not that far apart. They had a negotiating session a few days ago that didn't end well. We described that in our recent letter to both sides as a you know political farce. We want real negotiations to occur. And I'm confident that hopefully both sides will be able to iron out their differences, which at this point are relatively minor. Their differences, perhaps on paper, may be minor, but even you have acknowledged that a lot of the grievances go back decades. Well, I think what you hit upon is correct. Um, The teachers have a number of other issues with the way the district has been run. But in a contract negotiation, what's on the table is how teachers get paid. And and the gaps are very narrow. Uh, And the thing with the strike is it costs both sides money. The district has to continue to operate schools. Teachers don't get paid. They're not pleasant for anybody involved. Parents uh, might have a place to take their kids. I think DPS is going to keep their schools open. But uh, they're not going to have the same education quality they would if the teachers are there. Obviously, the educators are a critical part. I want to talk about an education issue that you've identified as your administration's top priority, and that is money for full-day kindergarten. Of all the issues that you could have pushed, what is the motivation for you personally? Was there a, a pivotal moment or interaction as a parent, as a the politician. So it's all of the above. And I know you recently did an interview with uh, Duke University professor Harris Cooper, where you talked about the research behind full day kindergarten. So certainly the research drives us the early childhood education years, preschool and kindergarten are really the most important if we truly care about ending these achievement gaps based on income and race. It's a cost of living issue for families. Certainly something I heard on the campaign trail is how can I afford you know, $400 a month, $300 a month of full-day kindergarten on top of my rent, uh, on top of my car payment, my other expenses? Uh, and why should families who can't afford it, why should their kids start out 
at an academic and social disadvantage to families that can. And certainly as a father of this year, a preschooler and, and our older son who was in kindergarten a couple of years ago, and knowing that, yes, you know, I can afford kindergarten for my child and preschool. Why should my kids start out in a different place over families that can't? So really, it's a convergence of everything from the data, which is where I start as somebody who's fundamentally analytical, to the personal, to the kind of cost of living side. I know one family that has, you know, twin uh, preschoolers. And so they're saying, please get this done. Now, they cannot afford, obviously, kindergarten full day for both their kids. Naturally, though, this will also pay for kids whose parents could afford it. That's right. And that frees up money, uh, which means that they can save for college education. I've heard from families that uh, what this means is, oh, my gosh, for that three or four hundred dollars a month that we're stretching for kindergarten, we can now start a college savings account for our kid. Uh, it might mean saving for retirement. It might mean summer enrichment programs for the kid. Right. I mean, families have a limited budget. Right. Whatever you earn, whether it's sixty thousand, eighty thousand, one hundred thousand. I mean, most families are stretched. That said, not too long ago, teachers from across the state marched on this building, the Capitol, for higher pay. There's the possibility of a strike in Denver. Many Colorado districts now operate, I think, as you know, on four-day weeks trying to save money. And the state owes districts about $620 million this year alone because of essentially an IOU that was written that dates back to the recession. Why not just send the money you've proposed for kindergarten to the districts and let them decide what their priorities are. Well, the districts do receive the money. Uh, what we're simply saying is a value that kindergarten is every bit as important as first grade and second grade, and we want to treat it as such from the state from a funding perspective. Uh, there are some folks listening to this that might be saying, wait a minute, uh, kindergarten was free for my kid. And that's true. In some schools in the state, and even in some districts, the district subsidizes kindergarten. What does that mean? It means they take that money out of grades 1 through 12, since they don't get the state funding for kindergarten, to close that gap. So in some cases, it saves the parents money. In other cases, it means that the districts can return that money back to the grade 1 through 12 budget to pay teachers better for lower class sizes, or even increase preschool learning opportunities, uh, which will go a long way towards meeting the wait list and the backlog of parents who can't get their kids into a quality preschool. Some lawmakers have questioned why you focus so strongly on kindergarten without proposing perhaps any additional money for transportation. I mean, as a candidate, you said you didn't support a sales tax that was on the ballot for roads and bridges. Here's what you said about the issue, though, in your State of the State speech. We have hundreds of millions of dollars to improve our roads over the next few years. But as we all know, it's not enough to meet the challenge, and we need to come together around a bipartisan funding mechanism to meet our current and future transportation needs that the voters of this state will accept and will continue to help our economy grow and Colorado to prosper. Are you seeing any specific proposals in the legislature or are you trying to work with lawmakers on something for this session? Well, first of all, we uh, made the decision to hold uh, transportation harmless to continue John Hickenlooper's commitment in the form of a $200 million general fund budget request in our budget. 
in terms of the long-term solution, you can't meet that out of operating funds in a given year. It requires some form of capital investment, of bonding. The only two solutions that I would rule out are the ones that voters just rejected. We're not going to move forward with bonding without new revenue. The voters rejected that. And we're not going to propose a 0.6% sales tax. The voters soundly rejected that. Do you think a third way might emerge this session that you'd support? I'm hopeful. That's the basis of discussions with Republicans and Democrats in the business community. Here's an interesting idea from the Speaker of the House Casey Becker. According to the Denver Business Journal, she's floating a proposal to raise money by doing something called debrucing. The idea fundamentally is that voters would allow refunds that they'd get under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights to remain in the state's hands and that that money could go to transportation and education. What do you think of that idea? Uh, it's certainly something that she's approached us with um, oh. that we are you know, open the discussion of. I think the key data point is, is this something that the voters of the state will want to do or is this something that would fail at the ballot box? We want to make sure it's something that has broad popular support and wins. Uh, we want to make sure it's something that truly addresses the systemic underfunding that we have. The Tabor surplus is an example. I think we've only had one one or two years out of the last 10. So that means for eight or nine of those years, this particular proposal would not have generated any more revenue for the state. It would in some years, it wouldn't in others. But again, the only things we're ruling out are the things that failed. And absolutely, uh, that's something that we've encouraged the speaker to flush out if they're going to move forward, that there's a coalition to actually get it done. I think your very first executive order called for an increase in the use of electric vehicles, making them more affordable, providing the infrastructure to make sure they can plug in statewide. Uh, Why make that the priority when people are sitting in traffic jams? Well, they're all a priority, right? But that doesn't mean that we should just stand still and not do anything. The $200 million that we're putting into transportation and reducing traffic, um, obviously air quality is another thing we're deeply concerned about. And with our electric vehicle order, we hope that the number of models of electric vehicles in Colorado will move, go from about 21 models, which are available today, to uh, 41 models. Do consumers want them? Uh, Well, absolutely. There's huge demand. Now models that weren't available in Colorado will be available in Colorado, including crossover SUV models that are not currently available here. Maybe we can talk about fossil fuels at this point. Legislative Democrats are working on a package of reforms they say they'll introduce soon on oil and gas. Uh, That'll likely include a change in state policy so that health and safety are top priorities when regulators consider permits. Uh, Also changes to give communities more power over where drilling takes place. I wonder if there's something specifically you'd like to see come of this this session. Well, Ryan, you really hit on on, the, the two things I ran on and sort of our parameters for the discussion is, yes, we want to formalize the local control piece and make sure that communities have a seat at the table around siting decisions that affect their quality of life. We want to make sure that you don't think that's a robust enough power yet at this point. It's a very vague gray area right now. And that's why you often see lawsuits when cities and counties exert themselves. Uh, We really want to make sure that there's a earlier stage in the process that cities and counties can play a role. I also strongly believe that we should put health and safety first. Let's focus on criminal justice for a bit. A man who is sitting on death row, Nathan Dunlap, killed four people at an Aurora restaurant in 1993. And your predecessor, a fellow Democrat, John Hickenlooper, moved from favoring the death penalty to opposing it. And so he made sure Dunlap wasn't executed on his watch. But he did not go so far as to commute his sentence, saying he didn't want to foreclose on that possibility for a future governor. 
So the decision now rests on you. What will you do about Nathan Dunlap? Well, what I've certainly said, um, you know, during the campaign is that if the legislature sends us a bill to eliminate the death penalty in Colorado, uh, I would sign that bill. I think it's not cost effective. I think it's not an effective deterrent. Uh, And if the legislature were to abolish the death penalty, then I would strongly consider uh, making sure that that a penalty that is no longer on the books in Colorado is not carried out for anybody who's in that process. That is to say, it's not just for those who uh, might get serious sentences going forward, but you would apply that to those who had gotten capital sentences prior. Well, again, I don't, I don't know what exactly will be in the bill, but yeah. I would certainly view them together. Um, if the state Republicans and Democrats were to say, uh, and I were to sign a bill that said we no longer have the death penalty in Colorado, whether it's formally in the bill or not, I would certainly take that as a strong indication that those who are currently on death row should have their sentences commuted uh, to life in prison. Though you wouldn't even need Republicans necessarily because Democrats control both chambers. Well, it's always been a bipartisan issue, obviously, among the most outspoken opponents of the death penalty are the Catholic Church and many in the faith community. Do you think a bill like that will land on your desk this session? You well, you're, ac- you're asking me to prognosticate here. I, or to tell me about you know, conversations you I don't know, Ryan. Had. I'm not a pundit. My job, it's clear to say where I stand. Please don't ask me to uh, you know, predict what um, the wonderful, thoughtful uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle will, will get across the finish line. I only ask thinking you might have been a part of conversations. Uh, I certainly don't expect you to have a crystal ball. And again, we're very clear about what we'll sign. And we try to, you know, for bills that we don't like, we're also clear about those. And bills will be working their way through the process. More than 99% of the state's prison beds are currently full. Projections call for thousands more prisoners to enter the system in coming years. But your budget doesn't call for construction of any new beds. Is that safe for the public? So we proposed a bed-neutral proposal with corrections, and uh, we are very interested in this discussion of criminal justice reform, meaning uh, right now we have things that are dumped on our criminal justice system that are often substance abuse issues, mental health issues that are more costly for taxpayers to deal with on the criminal justice side, and also, frankly, less effective in keeping people safe and preventing recidivism. So we are um, proposing that we maintain a neutral number of beds as we look at alternative treatments for folks that uh, don't necessarily benefit from incarceration and the public isn't made any safer. But that too sounds costly proper treatment, which often has to be long-term and people fail and have to try again. This is the good news, though. It it absolutely costs money, but it still costs less than the cost of incarceration, which is about the highest cost form of intervention that the state can do. It's, you know, $110, $120, $130 a day per inmate, very expensive. But can that be reflected in a a year-to-year budget? We can begin to reflect those values in our budget, which we are, but it's certainly much more than a one-year discussion. I want to talk a little bit about immigration, which uh, played prominently in President Trump's State of the Union address uh, earlier this week. Immigrant advocates and Democrats in the legislature are working on proposals to shield undocumented immigrants from ICE, uh, including banning county sheriffs from holding people in jails at ICE's request, uh, prohibiting sheriffs from participating in a federal program that enables them to do federal work for ICE. Have you taken a position on these types of proposals? Uh, Not on the two that you mentioned. Um, I've certainly said that I'm not in favor of any efforts that would uh, make Colorado a sanctuary state. I support local control of law enforcement. And that hasn't changed, and I don't expect it to change. You don't want to see, in other words, some blanket policy that prevents, for instance, a county 
from being as helpful to ICE as they'd like. Do, well, I believe I... in local control of law enforcement and that, you know, that cuts all ways. Um, obviously, there's guardrails on that in terms of the civil rights that everybody in Colorado has and due process. Until the federal government fixes this immigration issue, of course, we're going to do the very best we can here with dreamers, uh, with those who lack documentation through no fault of their own. There's no good thing and way that a state can solve it other than let's just do the best we can with what we have to make sure that crimes are reported. There's a relationship of trust between law enforcement and marginalized communities that we address the public health side because when folks are not insured and aren't healthy, that drives up the cost for the rest of us. And I think there's a number of bills and a number of steps administratively we can take in that direction. It's interesting you mentioned the cost of health care. I had this thought while I was watching the State of the Union. There's one thing that it it at least appears Donald Trump and Jared Polis agree on, and that is lowering the cost of health care. I wonder if you watched the State of the Union and if you thought, well, on this issue, maybe we can accomplish something together. Well, I sure hope that the Trump administration puts their money where their mouth is, because if several of the bills we're working on here can get to my desk, namely drug importation and reinsurance, we actually will need waivers from the federal government to be able to move forward with many of our proposed reforms to save people money on health care here in Colorado. Governor Polis, thanks for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Democrat Jared Polis is Colorado's governor. We spoke Wednesday at the state capitol. The Army is having a tough time meeting higher recruitment goals set by the Trump administration. Nationally, recruiters fell far short of last year's goal to find 76,000 new troops. The Army's target for this region, including Colorado, Nebraska, and southern Wyoming, is 2,300 new soldiers. CPR's southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce found the Army is shifting its message to attract young people. All right, you guys, welcome to Fort Carson. I'm Sergeant First Class Stone. I'm the U.S. Director. About 20 people from Colorado high schools are huddled in a group at the sprawling Army base just outside Colorado Springs. Teachers, counselors, administrators, it's cold. It's windy, and it is snowing. You guys just so happen to pick the best day of the year to come. They are nevertheless forging ahead with this day-long tour of the base, led around a fleet of military vehicles, troop carriers and the like, some weighing 30-plus tons. The educators climb in and out of the various rigs, supervised by soldiers in their full battle garb. Army captain and recruiter Wes Barber says recruiting strategy used to be focused on the bravery and the thrill inherent in military life. That bravado that you're talking about, there are still folks out there that want that. There are still folks out there that just want to serve their country. Yet Barber says to reach the Trump administration's higher recruitment goals, the Army has to appeal to more than a young person's sense of adventure. He's hoping to show these teachers the military is a smart, professional, and academic choice for career-minded kids. I would conjecture that when you join the military, you are in fact choosing college. That's Larry Beer. He's an education services specialist with the Army. The teachers are listening to Beer speak in a large gymnasium, an enormous American flag taking up much of the wall behind them. Beer says the Army can be part of a serious collegiate plan right from the start, explaining recruits can earn college credit through their training process, even in basic training. There are more than 150 career options in the Army. Those represent IT, they represent medical fields, HR, logistics, anyone heard of Amazon? The Army is pushing this more academically-minded approach in tours like this. 
and also in broad new efforts online, through social media, fielding teams in video game tournaments, and more. David Armstrong is an English teacher at Los Animas High School. He says the tour is broadening his perspective of what the Army can provide. When I was in high school, you know, it was a lot of the, uh, give me a gun and we'll go out and do what we got to do and then we'll come home and GI Bill. But their job is not just to carry a gun and a 50-pound backpack and go shoot people. You know, it, it's to, in some cases, be um, an operating room specialist. All the teachers here have volunteered to come on this tour, and everyone I speak with is coming away with a positive impression of the options in the Army. The teachers are also having some fun while they're at it. They move on to a series of semi-trailers posted side-by-side in a parking lot. Inside, several stations imitating the driver's seats of some of those vehicles the teachers were shown earlier. The windshields are replaced by flat-screen televisions, and the teachers take part in an elaborate simulation of a video game, really. Kate Bridgman is taking her turn behind the wheel. I'm the English language development teacher at Cheyenne Mountain High School. Many of her students are green card holders, considering the military as a path to citizenship. She's never been on Fort Carson. After living and working near it for years, she's glad she's getting a more thorough understanding of it. As an educator, I need to look at all all avenues for my kids, what they're ready for, what they're, they're looking for, and that the military has certainly developed a much more diverse kind of approach. While Bridgman's here, she's not above taking her own diverse approach to driving the simulator, going as fast as she can and crashing her virtual truck. <laughs> which, incidentally, crashes the whole system necessitating a hard reboot. Go ahead and get in the prone firing position. The tour ends with a visit to a virtual firing range. Sergeant Chris England has the teachers lay down with their imitation AR-15s. Everybody's good? Yeah. Okay, everybody's ready to go. While the Army might be more than just shooting a gun, shooting a gun is definitely still part of it. At Fort Carson Army Base in Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. When we come back, propose Title IX changes through the eyes of college students. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado universities have a lot of questions about proposed changes to Title IX, which of course spell out how they handle sexual misconduct. The University of Colorado and the University of Denver both sent letters with comments and questions to Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. DU was clear it opposes her plan. CU says they'll make any necessary changes to comply. But what does all of this look like from a college student's perspective? We're going to get some insight from Lucy Haggard. She's a student journalist at CU, and she has finished a Title IX series for the CU Independent. Hi, Lucy. 
Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Your series examines CU's current Title IX process, told through the stories of women who've gone through it. Uh, it also breaks down some aspects of DeVos's proposed changes. What did the women who filed sexual assault complaints with the university tell you about the process now? How do they view it? So we had two anonymous sources stories as part of this package, and they had very different um, experiences with the process. Um, first of all, whenever we're uh, talking to sources, we always believe them. Um, and the struggle with these two women is that one of them did get a somewhat satisfactory outcome from their Title IX investigation with CU. Uh, they got the perpetrator. Um, he was suspended, um, and then later that was extended to be suspended until she graduated. Um, and then the other source uh, was found that her um, her reports were not substantive enough for them to do anything about it. Um, so the current process itself is a bit tricky. It's not perfect by any means. Okay, you said that you always believe the source. Of course, journalists need to be skeptical to and verify the facts. Can you just expound on what you mean by always believe? I think reporting on sexual assault is really different from reporting on anything else. Uh, the source that I worked with, A.B., uh, is what we called her. They preferred to go by an, um, an anonymous name. Uh -huh. uh, she told me this quote, why would anyone put themselves through years of mental hula hoops just because they changed their mind about an action they did with someone? And I think that really resounds. People aren't really going to come forward and talk about something like this unless they feel like um, they've really been wronged. Uh, I mean, we also know that, that false reporting is actually quite low. Right. Statistically, it's, it's maybe 5%. Yeah. Good. I just wanted to hear your thinking on that. So you find mixed results about the current system. Uh, did any of your sources think that the proposed changes would improve things? Um. Not particularly, which is unfortunate. Uh, one of the proposed changes is that schools would have the option to raise the burden of proof from preponderance of evidence, which is the current burden, right. more, which means more likely than not, uh, to clear and convincing, which is the same burden as a civil lawsuit. Uh, and in a case of sexual assault, um, part of the reason that a Title IX investigation can be more beneficial in a lawsuit is that the burden of proof is lower. Um, and while there's no legal ramifications, um, survivors can get safety and help uh, recover if they are um, given the support of having their perpetrator um, disciplined in some way. And so raising that burden of proof would make it potentially a harder uh, for people to feel like they'll be believed if they report. I mean, reporting levels are already very low. Um, and B, it would be harder to prove something when there's really often not much evidence in sexual misconduct cases. And of course, supporters of these changes would say that uh, the, the consequences of this for the perpetrator as well can be serious and that there ought to be um, a real vetting of the facts. Uh, as we mentioned, CU submitted comments and questions to the Department of Education, and I want to play this from spokesman Ken McConnellog, who told us about how CU views the proposed changes. It's hard to tell at this point. I mean, having hearings and providing advisors for those hearings, that would add a layer to what we do already. So we're more 
curious about how that's going to work than saying it would be a problem. So we just need some clarification before we can determine how it's going to work at CU. Maybe we should talk about what he means by hearings, because that's really critical in the proposed changes from Secretary DeVos. Right. So right now, uh, as part of the Title IX investigation process, if um, the Title IX coordinators determine there should be a formal investigation, um, there's a difference between formal and informal. Formal is more, um, we think that we may be able to prove these charges, therefore we're going to ask all the parties to uh, submit testimony, submit um, evidence, and so forth. Um, And so right now there's a kind of... Uh, delayed kind of cross-examination where um, all of the parties can see the materials that are submitted in general um, and respond to them, uh, whereas what DeVos... It's not a direct cross-examination. Right. DeVos is proposing a direct cross-examination that is live, so in the moment, um, which brings up some questions of what if there's already a restraining order between policies? Uh, and the whole process is already traumatizing as it is for survivors. And so a live cross-examination would just make it uh, more like a court system in a way that may not be beneficial. And the question is how universities might mount a system like that. Did you get a similar response when you interviewed members of CU's Title IX office specifically? We did. Um, I was able to sit down with Valerie Simons. She's the Title IX coordinator at CU Boulder. Um, And they, to be fair, they really didn't know. Um, I sat down with her in December. And I think it is difficult for universities because a lot of these changes uh, attempt to make it like a judicial system more. And a lot of universities really kind of don't know how they're going to get the resources to do that. Um, So we didn't really get a lot of straight answers on that. And that's why there's not actually a lot of input from the universities in the package. All right. Lucy Haggard uh, of the CU Independent, I'm very interested to know what you heard from men about these changes. Now, men can be victims, too, of course, but the chief concern, as we've said from Betsy DeVos, is that men accused of sexual misconduct may not be getting a fair shake. What did you hear from young men on campus? So we spoke with some people. A lot of people, it's really hard to get them to talk about this, though. Um, it's Sexual misconduct is a difficult topic as is, and I think there are a lot of conversations going on now about how are we reframing consent Um, How are we reframing uh, dating and courtship in a way that if it's not acceptable to catcall someone on the street, how do I um, kind of say that I'm interested in someone in a way that's not very clinically, I am interested in you? A lot of people don't find that attractive. Um, And so I have heard from men that uh, they feel like they don't want to date people while they're in college because they are afraid of... um, potentially doing wrong and not knowing what they did wrong. Okay, so they sense a bit of a chilling effect in this regard. Uh, What did your reporting find about how CU is trying to prevent sexual assault? Because that's really critical here. So right now, every person who comes to the CU, uh, whether as a freshman or a transfer student, has to go through what's called bystander training. Um, And right now, it's a couple hours of a session in a pretty large lecture hall. uh, And it doesn't just cover sexual misconduct. It covers how to intervene when someone has alcohol poisoning or other things like that. Yeah, bystander training, meaning if you see this happen, you have a responsibility. Right. You have a responsibility to intervene. And the problem with that is, A, the message doesn't get through when it's a large lecture hall. And B, there's not enough 
discussion going on about how people need to deal with sexual misconduct specifically. And so a lot of students, I think, tune out in these sessions. Um, And it's not that the university doesn't want to do more. We spoke with the people who do bystander training, and they actively would like to hold smaller sessions multiple times within the first year of being at school. They simply don't have the resources for that. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Lucy Haggard, she's a student journalist at CU Boulder, and she's been reporting on pending changes to Title IX for the CU Independent. We'll link to her work at CPR.org. I hadn't heard of the words that are about to come out of my mouth. Horsehair hitching. Curious if you know that term. It's the time-consuming art of knotting horsehairs into intricate geometric patterns. Jeff Sailors is a renowned hitcher whose work is displayed at the Smithsonian and in collections around the globe. He opened a studio in Cedar Edge on the Western Slope two years ago, and he joins us now from our Grand Junction studio. Jeff, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. I understand that horsehair hitching is an art that is often practiced in prisons. And so I have to ask, how did you learn to hitch horsehair? <laughs> <laughs> That's the first question I'm always asked. I spent 13 years looking for a con- an ex-convict to teach me, but it was, uh, it was a prison art form, and you couldn't just be a regular prisoner. You had to be on the working ranch part of the Deer Lodge State Prison in Montana. <gasps> Excuse me, and I I eventually found a guy after 13 years and traded him a whole bunch of labor for him to instruct me to just get me started. Was it hard to learn? I I did not learn in prison. That's that's the first thing I always tell everyone. (laughs) And and just to be clear, this was only happening at one prison that was associated with a ranch? No, there was about, well, there was a dozen Western prisons from the 1890s to 1920s that did horsehair, but... Only about seven of them were prolific. Montana, probably the second most famous, and Florence Prison down in Arizona was the most beautiful work and probably the most pieces were made down there. That's just fascinating. So was this a prison industry or was it just a way of prisoners biding their time? Yeah, there was really no industry. But early on at the Yuma prison, they would set stuff out in the yard where the Regular people outside could come in on weekends and shop and buy hat bands, bridles, whatever. Yeah. What kinds of things can you make from hitched horsehair? You know, there's really no end to it. I've put in ho- horsehair over so many different things. Initially, it was all horse gear, and then it evolved into belts, hat bands, uh, walking canes, billy clubs. I do a lot of inlay work in leather, like spur straps, chinks and shafts cowboy boots. I mean, there's just a million, million applications for it. So there's a lot of horse riding gear that's actually made of horse hair. That's kind of cool. Yeah, but it's it's really not using gear of all the historical pieces. And I've probably seen over a thousand in the 40 years I've been doing it. I would say 99.5% of them were just hung on the wall, rarely put on a horse, maybe for a parade or something. But they were more of a an art form than a piece of using gear. Got it. So how how difficult was it to learn to hitch horsehair? And I wonder when you felt that you had mastered it, how many years that took? It's not that difficult to learn. It's just extremely tedious. Even after 40 years, I can only do about an inch per hour. 
So the learning process is very slow, and you have to be passionate about what you're creating to stick with it. I I consider myself a master at it just because I, I did it for 16 hours a day for the first 20 years, making a living on it. And I would say it took me 10 to 12 years to get to the point where I considered myself reasonably good at it. The closest analogy in my own life is I remember in camp making lanyards. Did you, maybe did you do that when you were a boy? Yeah, and in fact, horsehair hitching is kind of similar to that. It's I describe it as a cross between weaving with a warp string or or twine, and the horsehair is the actual material. I'd call it a cross between weaving and macrame because there's knot work plus weaving, and that limits you to basically geometric designs you can do some cursive work but it's it's not as clean as the geometric stuff like you'd see on navajo blankets so how many horse hairs might you be working with at a given time as you're hitching well when you start out with just a loose bundle of hair and you have to pull out seven hairs not one end split the seven hairs twist it together and not the other end to make what's called a pole and just say a hat band that's 21 inches long and a half inch wide will take three or 400 of those poles. And you only work one of those at a time as you half hitch knotted around the twine. But on a belt, I might have uh, oh, close to 150 of those strands on the piece of twine at one time. So it looks like a bird's nest when you start. It's pretty confusing looking. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with renowned horsehair hitcher Jeff Sailors. He joins us from our studio in Grand Junction. He has opened his own studio uh, in Cedar Edge, not far from Grand Junction on the Western Slope. And I want to know where you get your horsehair from. Horses, obviously, but which ones? The hair I've used for 40 years all comes out of Mongolia. The uh, nomadic people there, the indigenous people, still run... One outfit I know has 25,000 horses and mules, and they're, they're basically their whole income comes from herding animals, yak and goats and stuff, but they utilize the horse hair about every other year. They gather those horses and roach their manes and cut off their tails and <clears throat> excuse me, turn them back out until it regrows. Until it regrows. What is it about these horses in particular in Mongolia? I mean, it seems a... A, f- a far place to go for horse hair. Well, it's just about the only place you can get it with that many horses over there. And it all comes washed and sorted and cut to length. I have a lot of people bring me tails off a horse they've had to put down a favorite pet or a using horse and such. And for me to sort the hair and to length and wash it and clean it, it, it takes twice as long to make an item as importing the hair that comes all cut to length, washed, sorted, and bundled up. So. But do you do that for folks? In other words, if they have a beloved horse, do you make something out of the hair that they were able to salvage? Yeah, I'm I'm willing to do that, but the price almost doubles just because of the amount of labor and time and sorting and twisting the hair. I know it's really tacky to talk about money, <laughs> but what do you, what do you get for a creation? I'm really curious. My fanciest bridle had over 25 feet of hitching in it at an hour and inch. <clears throat> and I got just over $10,000 for it. 
So you figure that out, I'm working for poverty wages. <laughs> yeah, when you amortize that over how many hours, days, right. weeks you were investing. Are there... I've spent four to six months on, on certain bridles, which have, you know, like I say, over 20 feet in them. What do your hands look like? Are they calloused? They look like they belong on a 140-year-old cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're beat up and scarred and not a straight finger on them. I, I built power lines for most of my life and spent 49 years packing horses and mules in the wilderness, so my hands are pretty hammered. <laughs> n- I'm never going to get hired to be a hand model, that's for sure. <laughs> or maybe you will, just for the before picture. Um, how many horsehair hitchers are there in the world, do you know? I couldn't tell you. When when I first started back in the 80s, there was maybe a half a dozen in the Montana State Prison that would turn out four or five pieces a year. And over the years, I've given seminars and free classes. I've taught hundreds of people. And at, say, out of the 200 I taught, I would guess less than four stuck with it to actually finish something. Oh, so there's a lot out there. And there's there's some books now that you can learn. You don't have to go to prison and spend 10 years with the state of Montana <laughs> to learn. But but it's still very tedious, and you've got to be passionate about it to, to see it through. Any idea who the first horsehair hitcher was, Jeff Sailors? The oldest piece I've seen is uh, a Roman helmet had hitched horsehair from the first century A.D. And the actual hitching of geometric designs, the earliest stuff I've seen, comes from the 16th century and the Ottoman Empire. And it was truly hitching. It was beautiful geometric diamond designs. And they made what's called a turg, which they would stand outside of their tent to show their rank or assemble their warriors and such. And it was beautiful work. But I think that's the oldest I know of. And it's amazing to think that that persists, that hair. I guess it has a shelf life. I repaired two bridles that belonged to the famous Montana artist Charlie Russell that were both over 100 years old. And they had some wear on them. He actually used his. But taking apart some pieces to replace, the hair still had elasticity after 100 years. So it's an amazing fiber. Uh, just before we go, I want to mention that you don't spend all your time hitching horse hair. You and your partner, Patricia Carroll, are also becoming known for horse masks. Will you tell us in about a minute what those are? Well, traditionally, the Plains Indian, mostly the nomadic buffalo hunters, started making masks for their horses, mostly for warfare, and it evolved into pageantry, of course, in this century. But we just... We're both history nuts, and we just wanted to create something American. I'm a big fan of the American West. I think it's the only arts that truly belong to America. Everything else we've borrowed from somewhere in the world. So Mm. we just started creating these masks, and they evolved into lamps and chandeliers and things like that. Jeff, it's been a joy talking to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks. Jeff Sailors, a renowned master horsehair hitcher who now practices his craft in Cedar Edge, Colorado, on the Western Slope. The late Apple co-founder Steve Jobs was known to be emotionally complex. He apparently had a temper, and you didn't want to get on his bad side. Kind of an ideal character for opera, wouldn't you say? Information, illumination, connections, 
interactions, navigation, communication, inspiration, comprehension, not to mention communication. Okay, that's the opening scene of the revolution of Steve Jobs performed by the Santa Fe Opera. The show is now up for two Grammys. Mark Campbell wrote the libretto, meaning the words that are sung. He graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver and from CU's theater program. The production also featured CU College of Music alumnus Wei Wu performing the role of Steve Jobs' spiritual advisor. I spoke with librettist Mark Campbell in 2017, just before the opera's world premiere. I understand that when you were initially approached about this project, asked to be the librettist, you were skeptical. I was because I had the impression that most people have Steve Jobs as just being this very difficult, impossible man who treated people really poorly. But the more I did my research, the more that I discovered there is a lot more to this man than many of us have in a superficial impression of him. When I read that Steve Jobs was a Buddhist his entire adult life and that he had a spiritual mentor named Kobun Chino Aragawa, it kind of provided an entrance into this story that I'm not sure if I would have uh, approached it in the same way once I started reading about this man's influence on Steve Jobs and also a little bit about Buddhism and, and understanding, you know, the circular path you often take in meditation also that relates to the Enzo, a, a symbol that Buddhist monks draw. Um, it helped me create a story that is indeed circular in nature. The way we approach the story, Steve Jobs looks back on the events in his life that formed him, and it's motivated by Steve Jobs beginning to acknowledge his own mortality. The opera is not purely chronological. It jumps back and forth in time, and it starts in the garage of the Jobs family home in Los Altos, California, in 1965. Then it's 2007, and Jobs is publicly launching a new product called One Device. And uh, eventually we're back, <laughs> back in that same garage. The year is 73, though, and Jobs' best friend shows him an invention that lets people make free calls. And the friends sing about taking down the big corporations. He goes to show, he goes to show, he goes to show. I do want to say that a New York Times critic wrote that you and the composer left out a really important aspect of Jobs' personality, though. That he was, quote, such a jerk. <laughs> what do you think of that? Is he enough of a jerk on stage? Yes, he's very much a jerk. But the person who wrote that, well, never mind. Um, um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I won't finish that thought. It would be impolitic to do so. This is our version of Steve Jobs. Everyone has their own version of Steve Jobs. It's always a problem to write an opera about someone who is our, our living memory. My job was to create a character. In other words, something fictional based on real events. There are other episodes in this guy's life that I chose not to mention. Um, those are choices that you make. I will say 
that the audience response to this opera has been the strongest, the most receptive, the most resonant. And I've written over 15 or 16 operas. Hmm. And that's the most important thing to me. I won't please everyone with this story. But if I can please the 2,000 or so people that come to this opera every night and are transported by this experience, then I've done my job. And when people hear this music, which they have never heard before in an opera house because it involves electronic music, they are changed, happily changed. librettist Mark Campbell speaking to me in 2017 about the revolution of Steve Jobs, which is nominated for Best Opera Recording and Best Contemporary Classical Composition at this year's Grammy Awards. Winners of Christ will be announced Sunday. So glad you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.